Hi, everyone. Good evening, everyone. <laughs> Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Rothko Chapel. My name is Ashley Klimmer. I'm the Director of Programs and Community Engagement. And we're so honored to be partnering with MasterWord for this program tonight and to have you all gather together for this time of shared learning and healing. I'm curious for any of those who are here for the first time, if you would please just take a moment to raise your hand. If you're visiting the chapel for the first time, a lot of people, welcome again. This space was opened in 1971 as a sacred space dedicated to art, spirituality, and human rights. It's the home of artist Mark Rothko's 14 monumental paintings which surround you. This space is open every single day of the year as a place for contemplation and renewal. I invite you to come back during the day when you have the opportunity to experience the space in natural light and without the many chairs in the stage that you have with us tonight. We also offer ongoing public programs such as the one that you're about to experience. And for those of you interested in learning more about the space and the various programs that we offer, I invite you to visit our, Roth our website, uh, rothkochapel.org, talk with some of our hosts who are here tonight, or see the brochures that are located at the front desk. Before we begin, I do ask that you take a moment to silence your cell phones and to refrain from photography. This program is being photo and video documented, as you can see in the back, and we do make all of that footage available on our website for you all to, to see in the future and to share with friends who weren't able to be with us tonight. Now I'd like to introduce you to our partner tonight, MasterWord Services, founded by Mila Golovine in 1993. For over 24 years, MasterWord has been dedicated to connecting people across language and culture by providing language access solutions in over 250 languages to their clients both locally and worldwide. Please join me in welcoming Mila, who will introduce the program tonight and our presenters. Thank you all. Thank you, and thank you so much to the Rothko Chapel for hosting this event tonight. I want to ask you, how many of you in the audience are interpreters? Wow, big group of hands. And how many of you have encountered something traumatic in the course of your work, had to deal with trauma or stress? Wonderful. So welcome to Dealing with Vicarious Trauma, Healing from Within. And I would really like to, again, thank Rothko Chapel for hosting this event, for introducing us to the healing space, and for ways and how we can heal and giving us the tools on how we can deal with what we encounter. It is my honor to introduce uh, David Leslie, who is the executive director of the Rothko Chapel and is leading this um, amazing institution, again, on its journey for both spiritual leadership and for human rights leadership. Rothko Chapel, to me, represents what the world should become. It is the chapel that is a chapel of all denominations, so it is the chapel that recognizes all spiritual traditions, welcomes them, and unites them. And so I'm very honored that David will be leading us today. And Dr. Alejandro Chaul, who is Assistant Professor and Director of Education at MD Anderson Integrative Medicine Program, who is an amazing teacher of meditation and healing traditions, 
who have led other events uh, for uh, interpreters that we've um, invited to uh, before. I'm very, uh, we're very lucky to have uh, Dr. Chaul here who will uh, teach us uh, meditation and give us tools on how to heal from within. So, David. Good evening, everyone. Thank you, thank you. Make sure we're all here. It's a busy day, it was storming. I thought we might be flooded out. But what I've noticed here, that something about the chapel, if we took this on the road, I think we would be drought busters. Because every event we seem to do, it rains, but it seems to clear up right at the last minute. So we're glad you can make it, because I know coming back to Houston two years ago, from Portland, Oregon, there's something about the rain that is very different here than it is there. There it just rains all the time, but slow. Here it just comes down, next thing you know, your house is flooded. <laughs> so I'm just so glad you made it and you braved the uh, weather. I'm also really excited to be uh, partnering this evening, and I, I think uh, I, we need to give a big hand to Mila for her leadership in this city. Um, Just a little biographical note, my wife is a deaf educator and has worked with groups like the Coalition Texas with Disabilities years ago, uh, working on civil rights issues. So uh, to have a chance to host this is very personal in a way in my own life and family. And so welcome for what you do, because I know uh, when the hands went up, I just have a little idea of, of what you bring to your work, to life, and uh, to, to be in fellowship and company with you is an honor. Um, I also want to say a uh, special th uh, welcome, thanks to Alejandro, because Alejandro, amongst his many things, he, he is also a regular here at the chapel and has been somebody who has offered um, a lot of both spiritual insight, uh, system planning, integrating health and well-being in many different ways. So it's an honor to share the stage tonight. Thank you very much for hearing that. All right, now the clock can start. <laughs> Okay, Ashley, you got that. Now the clock can start. I wanted to start by this evening by reading something to you, and I want to see if, this, if any of this resonates with you. This is from uh, fact sheet number nine, written in 2011 by the American Counseling Association. Thinking about our theme this evening, I gleaned this from the bulletin. The term vicarious trauma, sometimes also called compassion fatigue, is a phenomenon generally associated with the cost of caring for others. Other terms used for compassion fatigue or trauma, secondary traumatic stress, secondary victimization. Vicarious trauma is the emotional residue of exposure that counselors have from working with people as they are hearing the trauma stories and become the witnesses to the pain, the fear, the terror, that trauma survivors have endured. Vicarious trauma is a state of tension, oftentimes preoccupation, of the stories, the trauma, experiences described by clients and people they work with. So with that as kind of a setting for this evening, a question that came to my mind is how many of you resonate 
with the description that I just read from the bulletin. This is a safe place. Please raise your hands. How many of you, in a way, in another way of putting this, are non-professionals who have the very thing that I just described? It might be in your family, it might be in relationships, it might be as a teacher. How many of you all have experienced that just in your personal lives? Question I have is, how many of you all have had the residual of trauma, such as emotional numbing, social withdrawal, reduced sense of empathy and even respect for the clients you work with, the people you work with, no time or energy for yourself, on the flip side, don't want to be with yourself. One that I thought about is feelings that you can't discuss at work with family or friends, finding that you talk all the time about work, or maybe paradoxically or contradictly, you just don't want to talk about work at all. How many of you all have had any of those feelings? I think I have too. <laughs> I mean, it's real stuff, right? This is really real stuff. And the question we come to tonight, and I think here at the chapel, because we'll talk a little bit about more about that in a minute, is then how can you stay whole as a human being amongst that cross-intersection of motion, of experiences, of feelings, of trauma, of stories. How do you keep a sense of balance and buoyancy? How do you nurture the sacred in a very profane world? Because one of the things I also discovered in thinking about this, that one of the other characteristics is not only fatigue or illness, but the loss of spirituality. How many of you have kind of would say, I've kind of lost a sense of spirituality. Does that ever happen? I see heads nodding. And that's maybe more complicated to explain, but there's something intuitive you know, that loss of spirituality. In my own personal life, when I came, before I came to the chapel, I spent, I don't know, 25 years working in organizations that were working with refugees with immigrants from all kinds of backgrounds and countries of origin, people living with HIV AIDS, people who, because of their economic or life situation, literally had no place to live in the evening, no homes, no place to call home. I also had the privilege of working with colleagues, many like yourselves, who also were at the front line of these very issues. And what I could see in my own life, not necessarily vicarious trauma, but what I would call a sense of vicarious chronic fatigue. Does that resonate with folks? A sense of chronic fatigue. I know there's a medical condition called, but it was almost, I never put vicarious before it until tonight, but vicarious chronic fatigue. And on top of that, and I don't know if you all ever do this, how many of you find yourselves in public settings where you are a mediator to some extent, an interpreter at the intersection of representing a person who has a need, a definable need or something, a problem that needs to be redressed. And your job is to interpret or to be communicative with a person that holds the power that can make that person or that community's life 
better or worse. Can I see a seat? How many of you all have ever been in those settings before? A lot of hands up. Now, thinking about this today, what I find that wears me out almost more than all the other stuff are being in those settings where I'm trying to change perspectives or communicate a perspective and finding that the person that is sitting on the other side of the table is maybe in the best sense ignorant of what we're dealing with. The next worst sense simply doesn't care about the life circumstances of the context or the situation we're in. Does that ever happen? Or the worst of the worst, what just wears me down is not only do they not care, but their mission is life is to make life worse for the person that you're representing or the community that you're in fellowship with company. Has that ever happened? I know this happens with negotiators. I've seen this happen in war situations. There was a book that just, the title of the book just never left my mind. It's called The Graves Are Not Full Yet. And it was about despots and warlords in the African continent. And the question that was posed by the journalist was, why doesn't the war stop? Why don't you stop killing? And the answers were, because the graves are not full yet, the graves of my enemy. And I thought, what would it be like to be the person at that in-between of trying to end the war and bring wholeness to a community and somebody working out of a very different set of values and ethics? And I think that that's part of that trauma that I, I wrestle with a lot in my own life. So the question then becomes, are there antidotes I mean, uh, are there healing bombs? Are there things that help make us whole again or can help us in that way? And we'll hear a lot from Dr. Shaul, but as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about the first thing that is really important is to, again, discover, maybe it's sometimes rediscover, maybe it's to investigate the sacredness in you and the sacredness in everyone you meet. I think it's so easy to just kind of make this a utilitarian relationship, or it's just a job or a vocation. But I want to ask you this, how many of you all do what you do because of the great pay and the great benefits? Now, except for Mila, don't look or anything, right? All right, I'll put it another way. How many of you are going to be billionaires doing what we do? How many of you, in another way, do it because it's a calling in a way? It's something you deeply believe in. It's a helping, you're part of that helping mechanism. To me, that's sacredness. That's the art of the sacred. That's the art of the vocation. So I think it's understanding that however it is, to reclaim that, to own it, and to hold it, and don't let that go. The second I want to say is I know this is a fact that sometimes discovering and claiming that spiritual depth is not always easy. And we'll talk a little bit more about that tonight. And I think it's something we know so well here at the Rothko Chapel. I mean, this place was built as a sacred space amongst and at that cross-section of the sacred and the profane. The Demonils, Rothko, the architects, the builders understood well that it is an art, it's a practice, it's not something that just happens serendipitously. It's something we have to work with. I've seen here at the chapel amazing things if, for many of you who are new. You can come in here tomorrow morning and you might see somebody sitting on a prayer cushion. 
in meditation, just finding. We don't know why that person came in, but it's that part of practice of finding that sacred of holding it. At the same time, was it last week, Ashley, or a week before we had a jazz string bluegrass band out on the plaza with hundreds of people dancing and singing and doing that? Again, that art of the sacred, that practice, and being in spaces where that can happen. When I came here two years ago, right before I came, I got a call from a friend of mine on a board that I was serving in Oregon. And she said to me that her daughter was diagnosed with cancer, was going to begin treatment at MD Anderson. So the whole family came to uh, Port Houston to be with her as she walked that journey. And she said, the place we came was a Rothko Chapel. She said, we came here an hour and a half before that first appointment as a way to be able to heal, to have a sense of community as we were walking into kind of that valley of the unknown. I would say the other thing about the Rothko Chapel and another part about being whole and healing is that sometimes this walk and this work can be very isolating, right? We sense some of the symptoms. I mean, how do you get, do you ever get that point you just want to tune out, turn off, and just don't talk to me? I don't want to hear another person, right? But there is something powerful about community. One thing we do here every two years, we give the Oscar Romero Award for Human Rights Leadership, named after the the, uh, soon-to-be saint, Oscar Romero, the Archbishop from El Salvador who was martyred and murdered in 1980. In the 1990, wait, good, 95, holy cow, 2015, we honored uh, Berta Caceres, and Berta was from Honduras working on indigenous rights who was murdered in March of 2016. One of the blessings that we had part of the awards ceremony and the programming leading up to that is we really got to know well the Lenka and the Garufana community here in Houston, the diaspora community. And we had programming, we had time for fellowship and food together. When she was murdered, this became one of the places where there was a, a memorial gathering. And it was really powerful to see community members coming from Southwest Houston, from other places, back here again, as we kind of all walked that journey of death and what her life and the tragedy. So one thing I would say and one invitation I would say is that even as you come into this place and you might come in alone, you're doing it in fellowship and company of spiritual journeyers, right? There's something about sharing space together like we're doing tonight that I'm telling you can be very renewing because how many times in your life you go to a conference or you go somewhere or you're with a friend and you go, thank God I don't have to explain anything. Do you ever get that? It's like, please don't put the person on the airplane that's going to ask me what I'm doing because I don't, you know, but it's just nice to be here. So that sense of fellowship here. I will also say in closing, I mean, there are other things that are very practical. Staying physically active. I also say, like, a lot of times we don't laugh enough. Cultivating a sense of humor I'm like not that funny a guy. I tell bad jokes. Kids remind me all the time. But we had here, what was it, Ashley, three weeks ago, a laughter meditation. I'm like Eeyore. You got to be kidding me. I was like laughing and I felt really good. 
And it just reminded me that in professions like what we're in oftentimes, the one thing we don't do is oftentimes have enough of a lightness of being because we think it's contradictory to the really profound issues we're dealing day in and day out. But I'm just telling you that's, for me, part of that balm, that, that piece of uh, soul care. And then the other thing, I'm, I, I do a lot here, and I've thought about this a lot, and I got it from somebody else. Just take a minute and look at the paving tiles, these tiles that are down here on the floor. And I'm up here, so it'd be kind of hard for me to do it, but I, I would invite you to take your shoes off. And we're talking about maybe making that a requirement in the days ahead. But just put your, take your shoes off and put your, if you feel comfortable. And if you don't feel comfortable, just really feel the floor. But I think this is the point, is to feel the floor. And for a moment, just think about the millions of feet that have walked on this floor. Don't think too hard if you got fungal issues, but the, <laughs> I, I heard that over there somewhere. But think about the millions of feet that have walked on this floor, the wheelchairs that have rolled on this floor, the walkers that have been on this floor. And think just for a moment about everyone who has come into this place as a place of solace, a place of being without having to be questioned, a place, as Ashley said, when you look at these wonderful paintings as they invite you, almost like a non-imaged icon, to invite you into a conversation about really important things in life's meanings. That for me, that's part of this sacredness of this space. In addition to the paintings and the walls, it's all the feet that have walked in this. And all the people like yourself tonight who have come into this space at all hours of the day and sometimes evening to find a way to kind of get buoyancy, meaning, centering again and again and again so that we can do what we do with passion, authenticity, care, the best of our vocation. So with that, I just want to say we're blessed to have you here in the Rothko Chapel. I hope you feel blessed because you're with all these wonderful people who probably you don't have to do a lot of explaining to. And that's a blessing itself. And I also, when Ashley asks you to put your hands up, you know, it's really subtle marketing for us. We want to know who you are because we really want to invite you back. Because I think it's one of the things that we know too about healing and care, it's practice, it's repetition. Like for me right now, it's walking every day, just making sure I walk three miles a day every day. And that way, if I keep that out there, I really feel bad the day I didn't do it. And man, it makes me get up and do it twice as vigorous the next day. But I just wanted to say that you're, this is your place. And I hope you'll find a place that when you need it to come and when you don't even think you need it, come. Because when you're here, you're gonna be with, with men and women, children, colleagues, young and old from all parts of the world and backgrounds that I really sense oftentimes are on a similar journey. So with that, I want to turn it over to my good friend and colleague um, because now we're going to do some practice and see what we can do. And again, I just want to tell you, it's an honor to be here. 
And because of what I know in my own life, my vocation, practice, my family, I just want to say thank you so much for what you do. Because you know it, the work you're about oftentimes is about lives. It's about possibility. It's about holding that story in trust for a better day. So thank you and all the best and look forward to further conversation in a few minutes. Thank you, David. Actually, I won't need this. Um, <clears throat> and thank you, everyone. Um, thank you, Mila. Um, not just for tonight, but uh, for all the years that uh, we worked together. And uh, with many of you that I've been seeing over the years um, in this working together, healing together. I want to thank the Rothko Chapel. I mean, this has been an incredible place for me since I got here to Houston 18, 19, 20 years ago. Wow. White hair now. I, had a, I didn't have so much of a front to show, but um, actually um, this, was, this place was introduced to me by my brother-in-law, Daniel, who used to live here. And so when I moved here, when Erica and I moved here, he said, you would love this place. And I came, and I came, I came, and I keep on coming. I come for events, but also I come for myself. Uh, when I uh, turned 50 a couple of years back, uh, my family came visit. This was the place that we came and sat and be with. So. I'm really appreciative that all of you came tonight to this place. I also used to teach a course at Rice where we call it Sacred Spaces of Houston. I always try to start it here and then go to other places. But as David said, also it's the sacredness of the space is because all of you keep on coming. I remember um, when I was looking for a topic for my dissertation, one of the first topics I thought of was pilgrimage. I was really interested in pilgrimage, and I was going to go with my now 92-year-old teacher to Tibet and go to all these wonderful places of pilgrimage. Because of the situation in Tibet, uh, now China, uh, it, it wasn't possible to travel together, so that never happened. But as I was reading about pilgrimage, pilgrimage in a way, it's almost like a power place. And the power place is both because of the power that the place itself has, but because of all the people that keep on giving power, as David was saying. All these tiles speak to that. All the space speak to that. And this is a particular space where art, human rights, and spirituality come together. Or, actually, they're always together. It's just that we see them together. It's a space for that. And so, one of the first things I want to say as we say thank you in this encounter of human beings to human beings is, in some of the Asian traditions, one of the mudras or one of the gestures that we do, and we do it in many traditions, which is 
as we place our hands together and we bow, what we're doing is, I see the sacredness in you. And when you do it, you see the sacredness. I don't know if you have any sacredness, but anyways, you know, it's a retribution. So what I'd like you to do now is as you do this, first turn to one of the people next to you and then turn to the other, but do it with intention. And for those who don't have anyone next to you, I'll do it with you. Thank you, thank you. So, sacredness. Sacredness is an interesting word. And many times we relate it specifically to a religious tradition. But I would claim, as many would too, that sacredness is not necessarily related to religion. It's related to spirituality, and we all are spiritual beings. When I graduated from Rice in religious studies, I started teaching at UT Medical School in the area of health, humanities, and the human spirit. And I started teaching, I was very fortunate to start under the, in a way, tutelage of Rabbi Samuel Karf, that many of you may know. And so Sam and I would teach a class on the importance of spirituality in medicine, and he would talk about kind of religious and non-religious spirituality. What are the things that help us connect to that aspect inside, to the meaning of why we're here? As I continue teaching this class, and I still do to medical students, I start with a book that many of you may have read called Man's Search for Meaning, Viktor Frankl. And in a way is, what are we here for? Now, in your different jobs, as David well put it, I think for most of us, it's a calling. And it's a calling because in being together, for those of you who are translators or interpreters, and for others, as you are together with someone, there's a particular link. I was, when I was talking to David earlier, and we were talking about that relationship of the translator and the person who you're translating. In this case, as uh, you may know, I work at MD Anderson. And, um, and so when we have a patient and we have the translator, the translator is always taught to speak in the first person. So in a way, that aspect of what the patient is experiencing, you start living it. And partly is, how can you live it? Can you really, do you really have the space for it? And this is something that I wanna talk about today, space. So partly is, how can we be spacious? Which is very different than spacey, okay? So <laughs> spacious actually has to do with grounding, with having the feet on the ground and noticing that when we do that, we have a sense that through that connecting to the stillness of the earth, we can connect to the stillness of our body and then slowly opening up to an inner stillness that becomes openness. And to get familiar with that, and there's techniques 
ancient techniques in many different traditions that talk about this. I'll talk from the Tibetan tradition that is the one that I've been studying for over 25 years with my teacher that I was mentioning earlier, Lupon Tenzin Namdak, as well as Tenzin Wanjur Rinpoche, who actually we had the honor of having in the chapel a couple of times. So what I'd like to talk today about is how can we connect to our inner space, to our inner sacredness, and not just connect, but how can we be there so that as we are there and we relate to someone else, how can we relate with compassion? Now, this term compassion fatigue that is mentioned in the literature quite a bit, particularly actually in the nursing literature, is mentioned a lot. It's quite an interesting term, and from some other perspectives, I remember having a speaker um, that was talking that actually, if you think of compassion, compassion itself cannot fatigue. If you're really compassionate, it doesn't fatigue. Now, what happens is there's empathic fatigue. It's kind of tiring to try and be always in the shoes of someone else. I see some people nodding, right? It's because, in a way, it's almost like the shoes don't fit us both, right? There's not enough space. But when you have enough space, the definition of compassion coming at least from this Tibetan tradition is that the compassion emanates from that space. So you first have to be in that space, grounded in that inner space. When you're grounded in that inner space, then what we do is we try and stay more comfortable there and even notice the things that are not comfortable. So there might be some inner movement, some inner discomfort, and how can we connect to that? This is where mind-body practices come really very useful, and I'll get to them in a moment. But I was just thinking how I got to MD Anderson. I just wanted to share two, two, two stories. So one has to do with translators. So my wife, Erica, was a translator until she got pregnant of our first son, Matthias. And when she got pregnant, what she noticed is she couldn't do this job anymore. It was very difficult for her. We didn't call it at that time vicarious trauma, but that's kind of what had happened. And she had to stop and, and say, I'm sorry, I can't continue doing this job because it's just affecting me too much. I hadn't remembered this story for a while. And then it's at the same time, 18 years ago, when my son was about to be born, and uh, my family came from Argentina. I'm originally from Argentina. My dad came with his wife. My mom came. And um, when, um, when um, <clears throat> we're there, um, dad asked me to accompany him to MD Anderson. He hadn't told me before that he had been diagnosed with cancer. And so that's actually how I started going there and um, started 
also translating to a certain extent. He speaks English well, but just being with him and having that aspect. And then that's what I started volunteering at MD Anderson. And 18 years ago, they, um, 18 years later, they still can't get rid of me. And uh, the good news is my dad is celebrating his 80th birthday this year. Um, I'm hoping to go to Argentina. So that's some of the connection of understanding, trying to understand a little bit of what it is to be a translator, what it is to host this trauma, and how do we work with it. I've also actually been a translator for my Tibetan teachers, which is a very different aspect, although many times I am in the position of receiving the question, especially on the one-on-one, -on -one, and trying, and many times it is because of those issues, and then trying to, to translate that as well. So I think I can be a little bit, as much as I can, so hopefully that these techniques that I want to share with you make sense. Because at the end of the day, is that these techniques make sense for you. Um, last year, how many of you were in the meeting we had last year where we did some meditation and we did some exercise? Some of you, just very few. Good, so I can repeat things. Um, <laughs> I was going to take a test, uh, see if you can still valid the CEUs from last year. Um, so some of the things that we did last year was what we call meditation pills. So meditation pills are moments. There's no pills involved. It's actually, and I say this because, you know, one of the things I do at MD Anderson besides classes is I see individuals um, in meditation. So I have a clinic. And um, actually what we do is we all have to write our notes. And we write the notes in the patient electronic file in the same way that the oncologist does, that the radiologist does, that the acupuncturist does, and the meditation person does. And so when we write the notes, one of the things I put is I counsel to take the meditation pills, and I put pills in quotes, and I mention a little bit, and I continue. And one of my supervisors one time says, you're giving them pills? I said, no, no, no. So these are the pills, and we'll talk about them in a moment. So you already have all the pills in your, in your uh, toolbox. So what we do with pills, there's different kinds of pills. And what we spoke about last year is things that we're already doing. How can they help us to be still? Because I want to reiterate this. Stillness, which is the first door can be the door to our inner openness, to our inner space. So stillness is very, very important. So what we did last year is, for example, you're driving, right? And this is something from a great teacher called Thich Nhat Hanh. So you're on your car and you're driving and you get to that red light. What do you usually do? You're like, oh, red light, or you take your cell phone, right? But what he says is, Thank you, red light. What a great opportunity to breathe in peace and breathe out all that stuff. So what happens when we breathe out all that stuff? There's more space, right? So we're connecting to that inner space. This is a meditation that you should do with your eyes open. Because when green light comes, you do want to press 
the gas and continue. Otherwise, you'll hear lots of different mantras at you that you don't want to hear, or mudras that you don't want to see. The other thing that I mentioned was, you know, sometimes we're so much sitting, even if we're translating and we're walking from one place to the other, we really spend a lot of times uh, a lot of time sitting, and actually one of the things I do and I would recommend is actually to have a standing chair for your computer. Um, but one of the things is just, you know, kind of shake a little bit and stretch. So we can do this one. So we can do this one again, even if you were here last time. So just take a moment to have your feet on the ground, as David says. You can take your shoes or not, whatever you prefer. and. Just notice your body for a moment. And as you breathe in and out, allow yourself to be more comfortable on your chair. And now all I want you to do is just stretch your arms up. Stretch, stretch, and keep on breathing. And see if you can bring that breath all the way down to your abdomen and back through your nose. Try and pause as you do this. You can have your eyes open or closed. And then slowly relax your arms, maybe shake a little bit, and leave your arms on your thighs or knees. And if your eyes were closed, just open them up. Just a little refresher. Right? So this is not a full meditation. What I'm giving you is some tips of just stopping during the day and taking these meditation pills. So um, a good friend of mine, Susan Bauer Wu, who we actually invited um, a few years back, and she's now the head of the uh, Mind and Life Institute. And she shared with us a great formula that I like. Really? Okay. So uh, the great formula is the stop formula. So stop formula is an important one. So it's easy to remember, right? Stop. So what are these letters? So S is for just stop. So when you're in this, um, how do you say, voragine, translators, like madness. madness. OK, thank you. <laughs> so in this madness, right? So you're running around, yeah, stop. So S for stop. T, take a deep breath. O, be open, observe. And this is the important part. You just observe with your breath, you just notice how you're feeling. And then P, proceed, or maybe you're not ready to proceed, so just stay and observe. So in this O stage, in this observe stage, is actually where you take the pills. This is where you have your toolbox and you say, well, maybe I'm going to take uh, a pill, as I'll mention them in a minute, whether they are by color, like white, red, and blue, or if you happen to mix the colors, just the top, center, and bottom, right? So we'll talk about them in a minute. But it's important to have tools. In fact, I, I was just uh, realizing that the last... Uh, newsletter that, we, that I just wrote uh, for MD Anderson. It's uh, Meditation Tools to Improve Your Life. 
And actually, this is on the website. It's free, so I'm, you can, uh, uh, I'll, I'll tell you uh, how to get it. But basically, it's important to have tools, tools to reconnect to that inner space. So one way, of course, is coming to a fabulous place like here. Not always you have the chance. Sometimes it's finding having a space at home or at work. I know in, if you're working around hospitals, all the hospitals has a chapel. And most of the time, that chapel is empty. And so it's a great space to just sit. Another part is nature. There's so many great spots in nature. Um, so finding a space, external space, is important to support your inner space. So whether you do it as a regular practice, which I would recommend, or just spontaneously when you feel stress, it's how you take the pill. So in a way, there's two ways of taking pills. So one is the method that I would call the aspirin method. So the aspirin method is my head hurts, I take my aspirin. So I'm stressed, I take the stop formula, I breathe in and out, I connect, and then maybe I feel a little better and I proceed. But what I would recommend is, of course, the um, aspirin formula is good, but I would actually recommend even better the antibiotic formula. So the antibiotic formula is take it four times a day no matter what. Don't wait until that stress, right? Actually, you know, when I learned um, in the Islamic tradition, right, you pray five times a day. That's awesome, right? Because you have five times a day that you have an opportunity to connect. So if you can do that, I would recommend that. Also, you know, now that we have all these beepers and uh, we can have some little music, we can even have a gong, you know. I heard some apps that you can put them at certain times and you hear, and you can just hear, okay, my meditation time, meditation pill. Um, and if you don't have any of those devices, just do it just before meals. But make sure that you have a few times a day that you take a time to yourself. So, these are things as meditation pills. But what's important in order to have and be able to take that meditation pill is to familiarize yourselves with what is meditation. So in the Tibetan tradition, we call meditation gom, which is related to the word kom, which means familiarize. So you're familiarizing both with the pills or the techniques or the meditations, but also with the experience. And this is what I want to get to now, to give you an experience of what we call meditation. So briefly explained, meditation is part of mind-body practices. So it means that we're reconnecting our mind and body. And you might say, well, they're always connected. And yes, they are, but some Interesting research in Harvard showed that 48% of the time, we are not where we are. So actually, we do need to reconnect some more. So what does that mean? That if I ask you, where are you now? You would probably say the Rothko Chapel. But no, no, really, 
take a moment. Where are you now? You might have gone, you know, oh, he said Tibet. You can go even without a passport and come back, <laughs> right? Or you can go to, did I park in the right place? <laughs> Do they have more of that Pat Greer's food? You know, whatever it is that your mind can be going to, right? But what about being here? And the research shows that when you are here, you're happier. And there's many other benefits of meditation. So what I like to do now is see how can we be here, connect to our inner space, and when we are in our inner space, how can we stay longer? So partly of what we talk about meditation, and I know for many people meditation has more or less the same meaning as relaxation. And this is an important part. And actually, Herbert Benson, around 40 years ago, discovered that relaxation response. That basically, even in the midst of stress, so when you are in that stressful situation at the hospital or wherever you are, what happens is you have this fight-or-flight response, right? Your sympathetic system is on guard. And because it's on guard and on guard and on guard, it stays on guard, even if you're not in that stressful situation anymore. So partly is, can we relax it? And can we even be relaxed in the midst of that same stressor? So Herbert Benson showed that, yes, we could be, and he called it the relaxation response. And he said that all meditations have this relaxation response. But I want to say that meditation is not just the relaxation, okay? So meditation, yes, has that aspect of Reducing the monkey mind. Can, I, can everyone understand monkey mind? You know this mind that goes from thought to thought, emotion to emotion? Anyone doesn't have a monkey mind? Okay. So, this mind can slowly relax, and then as it relaxes and it's more embodied, it's more like the heart mind. And that's what we want to cultivate. So this familiarity, this gom, is to be more in this heart mind. And many times what happens when we are here, 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 and we relax, 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 relax. That's not the mantra of meditation. You know, it's a nap and it's very well deserved many times. But usually when you're sleeping, you're not meditating. So a lot of times, you know, when you are in that beautiful yoga class and at the end you do shavasana and you hear that same mantra, usually you're not meditating. But it's a nice nap. So, what you want to do in meditation is to be relaxed, but be aware. So, what kind of awareness? So, awareness in this tradition is that as you are relaxed and find more of an inner space, what you discover is that you come to the place of silence, and that through the silence of the chatting of the mind quieting down, you can discover a different kind of awareness. This kind of awareness is the kind of awareness described in text as the sun. The sun illuminating in the sky. The sun doesn't say, I'm going to illuminate here and not here, or doesn't attract here and reject there. It just illuminates, present. And as we breathe and stay present, we can feel that sense of awareness. And from that sense of awareness, we are more in our heart-mind, we can feel kind of the warmth 
the warmth because our heart is open. It can share that warmth. It can share it with others, but also with ourselves. The metaphor is like a candle. Usually in Tibetan texts, they would say butter lamp because before, instead of wax, they would do it with butter. And so the butter lamp illuminates out, but still illuminates itself. So when we're in meditation, we're both kind of illuminating and sharing these qualities to others, but also with ourselves. This part is crucial for when we are caregivers, when we are translators, when we are in the situations where we are thinking that our role is just to give to others. It is to give to others. But don't forget giving to yourself, right? That famous metaphor of being in the airplane and putting the mask first, it's very important. So now we'll do a, a meditation and then we'll have time for questions. For the meditation? Okay. Brief meditation. Breathe in, breathe out. <laughs> Actually, he's telling me I speak too much. Okay. So, what we'll do is we'll have be comfortably seated on your chair. And as we were doing before, feet on the ground. And just breathe out. Breathe out whatever stuff is there now. And then breathe in slowly. And breathe in and out as you feel comfortable, not just with the feet on the ground, but sitting on the chair. We're doing again this stretching up, stretching our arms up, almost like grabbing the sky. But now as we do that, make sure that you're breathing all the way into your abdomen and back through your nose. Again. If you don't feel that you're breathing all the way into your abdomen, you can bring one of your hands into your abdomen and notice that you can bring more air there, almost inflating it like a balloon. And then breathe out through your nose. Breathe in. Breathe out. Great. And when you're ready, allow the arms to come down. So as your shoulders are relaxed, your hands are resting on your lap or knees or thighs. So the shoulders are relaxed, but the back is straight. You keep on breathing into your abdomen. Notice how your mind is guiding the breath through your body. And if the mind gets distracted, just bring it back to your breath. And maybe you can bring your hands together, resting on your lap and elbows out so you can open your chest and open your heart as you still breathe into your abdomen and back through your nose. And if your eyes are open, you can close them slightly. If you prefer them open, you can just leave them a little open, just looking to the tip of your nose and into the ground, a peaceful gaze.
And so that as you breathe into your abdomen, there's a sense of connecting to the stillness of your body. Every breath, connecting more to that stillness. Feeling the feet on the ground and feeling the support of the earth for that stillness. And that if you feel any part of your body moving, just breathe into it. It's stillness that can be relaxed. Just stay with that stillness. And as you focus on your breath, for those who are visual, maybe you can visualize your breath as if it was light. Many times we say green light, as green relates to the air element. But if not, just any color, just a way of focusing. So that as you focus on your breath, your mind is not wandering everywhere. It's just focusing on your breath. If your mind gets distracted, just bring it back. As you reconnect to your breath, the chattering of the mind quiets down and pay attention to the silence. I know you're silent, but be aware of the silence. Pay attention to it. Maybe the silence in between thoughts, the silence around you. Let that silence connect you to your inner peace. You may even feel almost like an inner smile with that inner peace. It's a peace that allows that sense of awareness, of being present. And with your heart-mind open, meaning without so much thoughts or without entangling in thoughts, every breath helps you be more familiar with a sense of awareness like the sun at dawn, softly illuminating. Breathe and be present in this radical new way. No judgment, no criticism. And from this place of awareness, with your heart open, let expand that light and warmth in the form of loving kindness, of compassion, of joy, of peace of mind, expanding it to others. Maybe you remember a patient, a client that you served that you want to share these qualities with. 
Or maybe someone in your family. Maybe the community. And as you do that, notice that your heart is open not just to give, but also to receive. So as you're giving, you're receiving. As you're nurturing, you're feeling nurtured. In that sense of compassion, feeling the need for others and reconnecting to ourselves. And maintaining that sense of connectedness, know that every breath is an opportunity to reconnect to our inner space, to our inner home, with this awareness, with this warmth. And that it's always there for you. It's like your inner refuge. Your inner Rothko Chapel. and maintaining that sense of connectedness without needing to open your eyes yet if they're closed. Slowly allow your body to relax. Maybe massage any part of the body that needs it. Maybe massage your face and your shoulders. And slowly maybe open and close your eyes a few times as you integrate with the external world without losing touch of your inner home. So you do it slowly, very slowly. So in a moment we'll invite for questions and can invite David to come up. But I also wanted to say that what you have here is your toolbox. This is all, right? So, or your botiquin, right? Uh, what's botiquin? Where are my translators? Botiquin, where you put all your pills? Okay, survival kit for now. Um, so. What it is, is that when, when you are in this place that your mind is at kind of a thousand miles an hour, do the stop, connect to the stillness. Just breathe in. You can even breathe it as white light as the pill or just breathe in and out. Maybe you are still, but you're not connected and you need a sense of connecting inwards. So you silent your mind. You connect to the silence externally, but also internally, and feel connection to that inner awareness like the sun. Maybe you have that, but you feel it that you want to really connect to others more. So you open your heart, openness, and then you connect to others, but don't forget yourself. So giving and receiving. Okay? Thank you.
So what's next? <laughs> so we have a mic, I believe. Yeah. If you have questions, comments, we got a couple mics here, and if you have a question, we'll uh, just raise your hand, and I'll I'll, I'll uh, point out who that might be. How about right down here, mid front? Raise your hand, really big, right up here. Ah, we have a mic here too. See no paintings around here. <laughs> You're what? You were talking about paintings. I don't see no paintings around here. You don't see any paintings. Hmm. Are are there any paintings? <laughs> are there any paintings? Let me. Ask, that's an interesting question. Let's turn up the lights just a little bit. Now look around. Just take a minute. How would you understand these four? These fourteen. Shall we say interrupters of the wall? See, these are Mark Rothko's great works of art. Mark Rothko is, Ashley said, was a, probably today in that top tier of contemporary modern artists in the United States. He died in 1970. But as he worked with uh, Jean and Dominique de Manil, and he was commissioned for this work, part of the question was how does modern art also provide a way to engage the spirit in these questions that Alejandro was, we were laying out about these deep matters. So let me ask you this, how many of you all have ever been in a um, Orthodox, say a Russian or Greek Orthodox cathedral? I, I'll just use that, I see a lot of hands. Uh, how many of you have been in a Hindu temple? You know, you, uh, you've been in Buddhist temples and places. What do you see, you see a lot of imagery, right? And the imagery, is, at least in my book, I know especially in orthodoxy, it's not only a story, it's an invitation to engage in that story. But here you don't see any, what? You see no images. But in a way, and I didn't use the quote tonight, but there's this beautiful quote of Dominique de Manil about these images, that they're, they're that same iconography intent of engaging a conversation. Um, and so these are paintings, these are works of art, but they're done in a way that are very non-prescriptive, right? They're not like a story. They invite you into that story, into that engagement. And what you commented, I hear a lot. I'm looking at my dear friend, Gail DeGaren, who has been on the board for a long time at the chapel. That I'm gonna just, rhetorical question. We hear that a lot, don't we? Where are the paintings? Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> Let me say also, maybe this helps as well, if I may. So, um, when my teacher, Tenzin Wanjo Rinpoche, uh, came to the States, I remember uh, uh, going to the MoMA, the Museum of Modern Art in New York, and one of my other favorite painting, painters uh, or artists is Miro. And so we were in front of a Jean Miro, and he basically said almost the same thing. He said, is this a painting? Because he was used to an iconography, mm -hmm. you know, in the Tibetan tradition, there's the Tanka painting where you have the deity, you have certain things, and, and that's the classic. So it's, that's what we think of a painting. Now, one of the things I was saying before, 
is this spirituality and religion. And I think a lot of times is we see also the spirituality in the shape of a particular religion, but what happens when spirituality doesn't have that shape? I think it's this. So what I see when I come here is that it's like, wow, I get invited into this amazing space. Now, partly as I was saying with meditation, you have to be familiar with it. And I happen to love this space and love, I become kind of a lover of Rothko. Um, and uh, uh, a few years back when they did at the MFA this mm. retrospective, I was invited to do four meditations in those paintings. So there is a way of getting them, getting in them, but maybe what I would invite you to do is don't call them paintings. Mm. Call them art or doorways and see mm. if that helps. But I, can I add that? Of course. I like to call them paintings. <laughs> we love to debate. <laughs> Only because of this. When you take a moment, and that's just why we invite people to come back over and over again, come at daytime, come at nighttime, whatever, is one thing you'll notice here, unlike a lot of art museums, I'm always at the MFA, the Museum of Fine Arts, and those docents come and always shoo me back. I don't see very well. So I'm always trying to put my, I want to see the, what's in front of me. But I would, what I would just add to that, not debate, but just add, is that one of the things you do see, though, in these works of art, the brush strokes. You see something that doesn't look like it kind of got quite right or might have gone over again or whatever. That's part of that human, deeply spiritual piece about this place, right? So they're art, but they're made... They're created by a human being who's also on a journey. And I think that's just, it's a, it's a neat way to kind of bring that together. And, it's, and, it, and it is an encounter. And I think, mm -hmm. you know, um, getting to know a little bit his son, Christopher Rothko, and talking about the paintings, um, you know, in that interaction that his father had when he was painting, I mean, there's a, a really momentous mm -hmm. time as spending in that that maybe some of that transfers, or it's just your own experience at that. And so I would, as David <clears throat> says, invite you maybe to come at a time when there's less people and just enjoy seeing one up close mm -hmm. and you know, see what happens. Yeah. Um, actually, is it on? Yes, ma'am. Um, kind of a continuation of that is that I, I <laughs> Lately, my blood pressure's been high. Maybe I need to spend more time here again because the Rothko has seen me through some difficult times. And, um, and, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding of Mark Rothko is that he was always in search of the divine and, and he felt that the spirit moved through him and all of his paintings, um, and these most especially. Um, and, and so I would come here to meditate and, and I would see the colors under the black. And my friends all thought I was crazy or, you know, doing too many drugs. Mm -hmm. It was the 80s. And, and um, you know, but so I'm actually kind of, they're starting to fade some. And, and if you look very, very closely, you can see the colors under the black. And, and I, I think that that was part of, of the divine you know, of, of, these, of these paintings, and they are paintings. And, and so, you know, now, if, so I, I encourage you to come back during the daytime, um, meditate, look very, very closely, and you will see the colors. And I wonder if, if the fading was part of his plan 
you know. Um, anyway, and so then, and, and thank you for the, the pills. I like the pills. Some <laughs> of the best advice anyone ever gave me about meditation is that, because I was complaining, I was taking care of my mom who had Alzheimer's and I had a demanding job and, you know, I was working with homeless people who had mental illness and blah, blah, mm. blah. And, and he said, and I said, I can never find time to meditate. Um, and he said, you never will, honey. You just take a moment when you can take a moment. For, uh, so I'm, I, you know, I have had clients ask me, why do you sit in your car, you know, before you come in? And so I will park, and so that's been a kind of a tradition, is that I would take five minutes or two minutes in the car before I go in. Um, just take that moment. I, um, when I lived in Philadelphia and in San Francisco, I meditated on the trains all the time. People thought I was crazy. And I'm like, because I'm not going to sleep. It, you know, I'm still aware of who's around me. And so like if somebody started to approach me, I'd open my eyes and say, what do you want? <laughs> you know? And, and so, um, so I love that concept of, of taking right. a pill, taking a moment. And thank you, Master Word. I work at Houston <laughs> Women's Clinic. So um, if any of you are kind, um, empathetic, people who have assisted uh, some of our patients through what is a challenging uh, experience for many of them. We're an abortion clinic, if you're not familiar with us. And so, uh, thank you, Master Word. Y'all are awesome. Let me add, too, I mean, talking about finding moments during the day. Um, you know, uh, one of my good friends, Jim Duffy, uh, one time came uh, to my office and he said, Ali, did you see that now we have a meditation device in every patient's room? And I said, really? He says, yeah, the gel. So right before you go into the room, as you wash your hands, you know, you breathe in and you breathe out and you clear your mind. So actually, how many times do we have to wash our hands? So every time, and actually now, I actually wash my hands more because I remember, oh, if I didn't, I don't need to wash, but I need to meditate. So, you know, maybe I'll do it. Or when you take a shower, you know that many of us, what, they, what we do is this thing of thinking of the day, don't. Thank so instead of as you feel the water running outside, feel it inside and just let you clean, be open space. Mm -hmm. I think there's a question over here. Yes, no. this question is for Alejandro. Uh, you mentioned earlier that you taught a class of sacred spaces in Houston. Could you mention what some of them are or do you have those online? Or? Um, well, what I would do is uh, different years I would go to different spaces. I would use different religious spaces. So they were uh, uh, a particular church. Actually, one year we went to one of the, uh, Rush, the Orthodox Church, to a synagogue, to an a, a, um, uh, Indian um, um, temple, to a Buddhist temple. So we went to different places. We even went to the, uh, what now it's not there anymore, the, the um, Byzantine chapel that was right mm. next door. So yeah, we went to many different spaces. Yeah. yeah. I want, I want to pick up on that. It was something I didn't, I didn't really elaborate on. How many of you all consider yourself sacred spaceologists? I see one hand, a couple hands, right? Yeah. You know, I, I think about that a lot. I did a talk recently about sacred spaces. And I thought about um, how do we create sacred spaces, like when you're in an uh, uh, interpretive session, a mediation session, counseling session, and it's really intriguing to me to be in places like, I've been in prisons and jails and parts of prisons 
that I honestly believe are a whole lot more sacred than a church or a synagogue or a mosque or a temple down the road because what they, the center of it is much what we're talking about, humanistic uh, potential of people, things of that nature. And I'm always intrigued about how do you, we or you as a, as a practitioner, whether it's in your own home, family dynamics, work, how do you create that space? Um, but something I think a lot about, in addition to those things that we would normally claim as sacred. Uh, I spent the last 18 years in the Pacific Northwest, and I've always been somebody who spends a lot of time outdoors. But as I got into that part of God's country, and I'm a Texan, so it was a little challenging. But I mean, just the majesty of, of being outdoors and that sense of, again, the sacredness. And then the sense of what we're entrusted then to care for those places, to nurture those places. So your, your question opens, from my mind, that interplay between both the physical, the spiritual, uh, the places we may think are rather profane, but in fact can become very sacred. And then how do you as professional or practitioner in that moment create that space where everybody's treated with dignity and just and worth? So do you have another... Wait, one over here first, and then we'll go over there. Okay, uh, this is about meditation. Um, I'm really familiar with the Mahayana Buddhist uh, style. Um, I've been to m many workshops, and uh, the uh, basic principle is, is actually about nothingness. So you're not, supposed to, you're not supposed to think about anything for a certain amount of time because that's how you clear your mind. So what I'm trying to understand, but I know there are various different forms of meditation, so when you say silence, but usually that's, yeah, that's what they teach you to do is not think. And, and if you want to get rid of the monkey mind or all the wandering thoughts, then what you do is uh, you can start by counting numbers and you can't see anything. They're not supposed to see any color. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a practice. So when you say silence or you to say connect with your, in yourself, what so exactly, how yeah. do you do that? So thank you. So this comes from a Dzogchen practice, um, but as you well said, there's many practices. There's actually, just in the Tibetan tradition, they talk about 84,000 different practices. Mm -hmm. So I always have jokingly tell to the patients, I said, if you didn't like this one, there's 83,999 <laughs> others, so no worries. However, I do want to say something about emptiness, uh, and there's whole books on <clears throat> emptiness, but you know, one of the understandings of emptiness, at least in the way uh, my teachers talk about emptiness, is that emptiness is not, the la it's not when there's no thoughts at all. Um, that it's very hard to really be in a totally thoughtless space, but it's actually more of a spacious, again, not spacey, but spacious space, where things are allowed to come and go. So thoughts are there, but they just come and go like a bird flying in the sky. And so what you, what's happening is your mind is not grasping to them. So even not grasping to the idea of empty. So it's just being able to be in that spacious space where things come and go. And as that happens, you start getting into the silence of it. And then that silence can allow you to go deeper into a peacefulness and then feeling the sense of awareness. But we can talk more. Yeah. Hi, David. Thank 
Thank you for putting this together. And hi, Ale. I have a question for you. So during meditation practice, um, if I find something that I'm uncomfortable with about myself or learn something about myself that I'm not happy with, is that something I should save for later, bookmark for later, or can I continue to explore that during? Good question. And I think it's very important. I mean, there are many techniques to bring it in, right? I mean, I used to uh, think that my idea of sacredness was that the cushion, you know, my meditation space was so sacred that I couldn't bring my stuff, you know, because it was too profane. Mm. Um, but what my teachers taught me is that this is exactly the place. But in order to bring it, I need to be in the right space. So if I've come to that thing with my rotten karmic cushion, it's going to be an awful thing. It's going to be pain meeting pain, right? But if I come with a space, with an open space, with a luminous hug, then you can meet that pain, that situation, in a very different way. Mm. And then you can host it. So that's the way to bring it. So you first prepare yourself, and then you bring mm. it in. You know, there's a... It's great sharing the stage. I'm kind of the temporal part of the duo. He's the spiritual and the temporal, which is kind of interesting in that sense. But I think about, think about it in your life. This is this really intriguing thought because how often do you get into those modes of, you know, just even in your professional practice or life, I don't want to be interrupted. I'm busy. I've got deadlines to meet. And then somebody kind of pops by the office, right? Or something happens. And then you look back. You may take a while to look back. And you might look back and say, that was the most serendipitous encounter of the whole day. Right? That, and it's, I, I had never really thought about it in the terms of meditation or prayer. That somehow that thought comes in that you kind of think you're not supposed to, And it turns out to be the most serendipitous Thing that happened, and I, I wonder how you keep that balance. But it is, I, I think it's in that sense of that emptiness too. That somehow there might be something that just kind of co- occurs that really is the voice you're supposed to be listening to. Yeah, and my teacher <clears throat> Tenzi Wanderimbuche would say that what you want to work with is something that is fresh and is coming right there. So you know, when sometimes he would say, "Bring something to the cushion," and if you say, "I don't have anything," don't dig. Don't start going, I know I probably have something. If there's nothing, enjoy the open sky. Mm -hmm. But if there is something that is fresh right there, bring it, work with it. Yeah. I want to thank you both for an amazing discussion. Thank you, David Leslie. Thank you, Alejandro Chaul. Before we continue our discussion on the plaza where will be additional refreshments tonight, I want to give special thanks to our interpreters tonight. Whitney, mm-hmm. please stand up. Whitney Gissel and Corey McCann. Now, the interpreters tonight have been sponsored by DevTube, which is a new amazing undertaking, which is a YouTube channel for deaf people. Mm. And I really invite you all to support them and their undertaking of this inclusion and their journey. And if you have any projects that can potentially connect with DevTube, I really invite you to talk to Whitney and Cody, uh, Francisco right here. and. Uh, uh, 
Thank you very much again for sponsoring the interpreters tonight. Thank you. to con uh, continue the dialogue and the question. There were some additional refreshments on the plaza. We got interrupted by rain, but set up. And also David Vidri and John will be out there uh, to record any of your impressions, interviews, things that you may want to share, uh, because we would like to invite as many people as possible to come to the Rothko Chapel as a sacred space. They have amazing programs that uh, go on during the year, and it's, uh, it's very close to the medical center. It's actually close to everything. So please be very welcome to come here as often as possible. And I'm going to take a moment of executive privilege. I want you to meet the newest, one of the newest Rothko Chapel board members. So we're honored to have you here. And thank you, and uh, again, thank you all for coming. And very, since we have so many people here tonight, if you all don't mind just exiting through the two center aisles, um, it will help our host who don't have to... Uh...